I turned from the temple gate as soon as I had read the warning. It was plain that I must see Wemmick before seeing anyone else, and equally plain that his Walworth sentiments only could be taken. You did come home then? Yes, but I didn't go home. Now, Mr Pym, you know we are in our private and personal capacities. I accidentally heard yesterday morning, being in a certain place, that a certain person, not altogether of uncolonial pursuits and not unpossessed of portable property, we won't name this person. Not necessary. Had made some little stir in a certain part of the world where a good many people go, not always in gratification of their own inclinations and not quite irrespective of the government expense, by disappearing from such a place and being no more heard of thereabouts. I also heard that you at your chambers had been watched and might be watched again. You have heard of a man of bad character whose true name is Compeyson. He nodded at me once. Is he living? Another nod. Is he in London? He gave me one other nod. Now, questioning being over, I come to what I did. Not finding you, I went to find Mr Herbert, and, without going into any details, I gave him to understand that if he was aware of anybody, Tom, Jack or Richard, being about the chambers, he had better get Tom, Jack or Richard out of the way while you were out of the way. He would be greatly puzzled what to do. He was puzzled what to do, not the less because I gave him my opinion that it was not safe to try to get Tom, Jack or Richard too far out of the way at present. Don't break cover too soon. Lie close. Wait till things slacken before you try the open, even for foreign air. Mr Herbert mentioned to me that he is courting a young lady who lives by the riverside between Limehouse and Greenwich. Mr Herbert put it to me, what did I think of that as a temporary tenement for Tom, Jack or Richard? Now I thought very well of it. Here's the address. There can be no harm in you going here tonight, but after you have gone home, don't go back here. Let me finally impress one important point upon you. Avail yourself to lay hold of his portable property. Don't let anything happen to the portable property. I found that the spot I wanted was anything but easy to find. It was called Mill Pond Bank. In his two cabin rooms at the top of the house, I found Provis comfortably settled. I have talked with Wemmick and have come to tell you what caution he gave me and what advice. This I did, accurately. I added that when the time came for getting him abroad, I should go with him. We are both good watermen, Handel. We could take him down the river and get Provis aboard the foreign steamer ourselves when the right time comes. No boat would then be hired for the purpose and no boatman. That would save at least a chance of suspicion. We agreed that the scheme should be carried into execution. I don't like to leave you here, though I cannot doubt your being safer here than near me. Goodbye. Dear boy, I don't know when we may meet again, and I don't like goodbye. Say goodnight. <laughs> goodnight. When the time comes, you may be certain I shall be ready. Goodnight. Goodnight. Next day, I set myself to get the boat and began to go out as for training and practice. Still, I could not get rid of the notion of being watched. Once received, it is a haunting idea. Some weeks passed without bringing any change. We waited for Wemmick, and he made no sign. 
I was pressed for money by more than one creditor, but I had quite determined that it would be heartless fraud to take more money from my patron. Therefore, I had sent him the unopened pocket-book by Herbert to hold in his own keeping. One afternoon I was strolling along Cheapside when a large hand was laid upon my shoulder. It was Mr Jaggers's hand. Come and dine with me, Mr Pip. Wemmick's coming. As soon as we got there, dinner was served. Did you send that note of Miss Havisham's to Mr Pip, Wemmick? No, sir. Here it is. She tells me that she wants to see you on a little matter of business you mentioned to her. You'll go down? Yes. So, Pip, our friend Mr Drummle has played his cards. He has won the pool. Ha! He is a promising fellow, but he may not have it all his own way. The stronger will win in the end, but the stronger has to be found out first. So here's to Mrs Bentley Drummle, and may the question of supremacy be settled to the lady's satisfaction. Now, Molly! Molly, 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 Molly. How slow you are today. His housekeeper was at his elbow immediately. A certain action of her fingers arrested my attention. I looked at those hands. I looked at those eyes. I looked at that hair. And I compared them with other hands, other eyes, other hair. And I felt absolutely certain that this woman was Estella's mother. Wemmick and I took our leave together. Wemmick, do you remember telling me before to notice Mr Jaggers's housekeeper? Ah, oh, I dare say I did. I wish you would tell me her story. We are in our private and personal capacities, of course. Putting Miss Havisham's note in my pocket, I went down again by the coach the next day. The best light of the day was gone when I passed along the quiet, echoing courts behind the high street. The cathedral chimes had at once a sadder and a more remote sound to me, and seemed to call to me that the place was changed, and that Estella was gone out of it forever. You said, speaking for your friend, that you could tell me how to do something useful and good. Something that you would like done, is it not? Something that I would like done very much. How much money is wanting it to complete the purchase? Nine hundred pounds. Can I only serve you, Pip, by serving your friend? Is there nothing I can do for you yourself? Nothing. I thank you for the question. I thank you even more for the tone of the question. But there is nothing. She took from her pocket a yellow set of ivory tablets and wrote upon them with a pencil. This is an authority to Mr. Jaggers to pay you that money. For your friend. Thank you, Miss Havisham. My name is on the first leaf. If you could ever write under my name, I forgive her. Pray do it. Oh, Miss Havisham, I can do it now. There have been sore mistakes and my life has been a blind and thankless one, but I want forgiveness and direction far too much to be bitter with you. She turned her face to me and, to my amazement, dropped on her knees at my feet. Oh, what have I done? What have I done? Until you spoke to her the other day, and I saw in you a looking-glass that showed me what I once felt myself. I did not know what I had done. What have I done? What have I done? Miss Havisham, you may dismiss me from your mind and conscience, but Estella is a different case. Yes, 
yes, I know it, but Pip, my dear, believe this. When she first came to me, I meant to save her from misery like my own. Miss Havisham, does what has passed between us give me any excuse for asking you a question relative to Estella? Go on. Whose child was Estella? She shook her head. You don't know? She shook her head again. But Mr. Jaggers brought her here or sent her here? Brought her here. Might I ask her age then? Two or three. I resolved to walk round the place before leaving, for I had a presentiment that I should never be there again. Before departing, I resolved to go upstairs and assure myself that Miss Havisham was as safe and well as I had left her. In the moment when I was withdrawing my head to go quietly away, I saw a great flaming light spring up. In the same moment, I saw her running at me, shrieking, with a whirl of fire blazing all about her and soaring at least as many feet above her head as she was high. I had a coat on and over my arm another thick coat. Then I got them off, closed with her, threw her down and got them over her. Then I dragged the great cloth from the table for the same purpose and with it dragged down the heap of rottenness in the midst and all the ugly things that sheltered there. That this occurred I knew through the result, but not through anything I felt or thought or knew I did. I knew nothing until I knew that we were on the floor by the great table and that patches of tinder yet were floating in the smoky air, which a moment ago had been her faded bridal dress. Assistance was sent for, and I held her until it came. When I got up, I was astonished to see that both my hands were burnt. An hour afterwards, she lay indeed where she had said that she would lie one day. Towards midnight, she began to wander in her speech, and after that it gradually set in that she said innumerable times in a low, solemn voice, what have I done? And then? When she first came, I meant to save her from misery like mine. And then? Take the pencil and write under my name. I forgive her. Herbert, who was the kindest of nurses, did his utmost to hold my attention engaged. Uh, lay your arm out upon the back of the sofa, my dear boy, and I'll get the bandages off so that you shall not know when it comes. I was speaking of Provis. Do you know Handel? He improves. I said to you I thought he was softened when I last saw him. Uh, yes, you remember his breaking off here about some woman that he had got into great trouble with. How did I hurt you? I had forgotten that, Herbert, but I remember it now that you speak of it. Well, he went into that part of his life, and a dark, wild part it is. It seems that the woman was a jealous woman, and a revengeful woman, revengeful handle to the last degree. To what last degree? A murder. <laughs> or does it strike too cold on that sensitive place? I don't feel it. How did she murder? Whom did she murder? Uh, why, the deed may not have merited quite so terrible a name, but she was tried for it, and Mr. Jaggers defended her. It was another and a stronger woman who was the victim, and there had been a struggle in a barn. Was the woman brought in guilty? No, no, she was acquitted. <sighs> oh, my poor handle, I hurt you! It is impossible to be gentler, Herbert. Yes, what else? This acquitted young woman and Provis had a little child. On the evening when the object of her jealousy was strangled, 
The young woman presented herself before Provis and swore that she would destroy the child and he should never see it again. Then she vanished. You don't think your breathing is affected, my dear boy. You seem to breathe quickly. Perhaps I do, Herbert. I want to know, and particularly, Herbert, whether he told you when this happened. Particularly? Well, how old were you when you came upon him in the little churchyard? I think in my seventh year. Aye, it had happened some three or four years then, he said, and you brought into his mind the little girl so tragically lost, who would have been about your age. Herbert, can you see me best by the light of the window or the light of the fire? Uh, by the firelight. Look at me. I do look at you, my dear boy. You are not afraid that I am in any fever, or that my head is much disordered by the accident of last night? N no, no, my dear boy, you are rather excited, but you are quite yourself. I know I am quite myself. And the man we have in hiding down the river is Estella's father. I arrived in Little Britain early next morning and produced Miss Havisham's authority to receive the £900 for Herbert. I'm sorry, Pip, that we do nothing for you. Miss Havisham was good enough to ask me whether she could do nothing for me, and I told her no. Everybody should know his own business. I should not have told her no if I had been you. I did ask something of Miss Havisham, however, sir. I asked her to give me some information relative to her adoptive daughter, and she gave me all she possessed. Did she? Ha! I don't think I should have done so. If I had been Miss Havisham, but she ought to know her business best. I know more of the history of Miss Havisham's adopted child than Miss Havisham herself does, sir. I know her mother. Mother? I have seen her mother within these three days. Yes. And you have seen her still more recently. Yes. Perhaps I know more of Estella's history than even you do. I know her father too. So, you know the young lady's father, Pip? Yes, and his name is Provis from New South Wales. And on what evidence, Pip, does Provis make this claim? Oh, no, he does not make it, and has never made it, and has no knowledge that his daughter is in existence. I'll put a case to you. Mind, I admit nothing. Of course. Now, Pip, put the case that a woman held her child concealed and was obliged to communicate the fact to her legal adviser. Put the case that at the same time he held a trust to find a child for an eccentric rich lady to adopt and bring up. I follow you, sir. Put the case that pretty nigh all the children he saw in his daily business life he had reason to look upon as so much spawn to develop into the fish that were to come to his net. To be prosecuted, forsworn, made orphans, bedeviled somehow. I follow you, sir. Put the case, Pip, that here was one pretty little child out of the heap who could be saved. Put the case that this was done and that the woman was cleared. I understand you perfectly. But I make no admissions. But that you make no admissions. Put the case, Pip, that the child grew up, that the mother was still living, that the father was still living, that the secret was still a secret, except that you had got wind of it. Put that last case to yourself very carefully. I do. For whose sake would you reveal the secret? For the father's, I think he would not be much the better for the mother. For the mother's, I think if she had done such a deed, she would be safer where she was. For the daughter's, I think it would hardly serve her to establish her parentage and to drag her back to disgrace. But, at the case that you had loved her, Pip, then I tell you that you had better chop off that bandaged left hand of yours with your bandaged right hand and then pass the chopper on to Wemmick there to cut that off too. We had got into the month of March when I received the following letter from Wemmick. Burn this as soon as read. Early in the week, or say Wednesday, you might do what you know of 
if you felt disposed to try it. Now burn. We found that a steamer for Hamburg was likely to suit our purpose best. Wednesday morning dawned. It was one of those March days when the sun shines hot and the wind blows cold, when it is summer in the light and winter in the shade. Old London Bridge was soon passed, and the White Tower and Traitor's Gate, and we were among the tiers of shipping. And now I could see, with a faster beating heart, Mill Pond Bank. We touched the stairs lightly for a single moment, and he was on board and we were off again. If you know, dear boy, what it is to sit here longer, my dear boy, harder, haven't been day by day betwixt four walls, you'd envy me. But you don't know what it is. If all goes well, you will be perfectly free and safe again within a few hours. Well, I hope so. But we can no more see the bottom of these next few hours than we can see the bottom of this river. We persevered and rowed and rowed and rowed until the sun went down. We rowed out into the track of the steamer. But it was more than half an hour before we saw her smoke. As they were coming on at full speed, we got the bags ready and we were taking that opportunity of saying goodbye when I saw a four-oared galley shoot out from under the bank but a little way ahead of us. The galley crossed us, let us come up with her and fell alongside. She kept alongside, drifting when we drifted, pulling a stroke or two when we pulled. The steamer was nearing us very fast and the beating of her paddles grew louder and louder. I felt as if her shadow were absolutely upon us. You have a return transport there. His name is Abel Magwitch. I apprehend that man and call upon him to surrender and you to assist. They ran the galley aboard us. I heard them calling to us from the steamer and heard the order given to stop the paddles. But I felt her driving down on us irresistibly. In the same moment, I saw the prisoner start up, lean across his captor and pull the cloak from off his neck. Still, in the same moment, I saw that the face disclosed was the face of the other convict of long ago. Still, in the same moment, I heard a great cry on board the steamer and a loud splash in the water and felt the boat sink under the Later, I was on board the galley. The two convicts were gone. Presently, a dark object was seen in the water, bearing towards us on the tide. I saw it to be Magwitch. He was taken on board and instantly manacled at the wrists and ankles. He had received some very severe injury in the chest and a deep cut in the head. My repugnance to him now had all melted away, and in the hunted, wounded, shackled creature who held my hand in his, I only saw a man who had meant to be my benefactor. I only saw in him a much better man than I had been to Joe. As we returned, I told him how grieved I was to think that he had come home for my sake. Dear boy, I'm quite content to take my chance. I've, 
I've seen my boy, and he can be a gentleman without me. No. I had thought about that. No. I understood Wemmick's hint now. I foresaw that, being convicted, his possessions would be forfeited to the Crown. Compasson's body was found many miles from the scene of his death, and so horribly disfigured that he was only recognisable by the contents of his pockets. Magwitch was taken to the police court and committed to take his trial at the next session. It was at this dark time of my life that Herbert returned one evening, a good deal cast down. My dear Handel, I fear I shall soon have to leave you. We shall lose a fine opportunity if I put off going to Cairo, and I am very much afraid I must go, Handel, when you most need me. Herbert, I shall always need you, because I shall always love you. But my need is no greater now than at another time. My dear fellow, let the near prospect of our separation be my justification for troubling you about yourself. Have you thought about your future? No, for I have been afraid to think of any future. Oh, but yours cannot be dismissed. In this branch house of ours, Handel, we must have a... A clerk. A clerk? And I hope it is not at all unlikely that he may expand, as a clerk of your acquaintance has expanded, into a partner. Herbert, if you could, leave the question open for a little while. Oh, for any while? Six months? A year? <laughs> not so long as that. Two or three months at most. Provis lay in prison very ill. The trial was very short and very clear. At that time, it was the custom to make a finishing effect with the sentences of death. I can scarcely believe that I saw two and thirty men and women put before the judge to receive that sentence together. As the days went on, I noticed more and more that he would lie placidly looking at the white ceiling with an absence of light in his face. Dear boy, I thought you was late, but I knowed you couldn't be that. It is just the time. I waited for it at the gate. <laughs> you always wait at the gate, don't you, dear boy? Yes, not to lose a moment of the time. Thank you, dear boy, thank you. God bless you. You've never deserted me, dear boy. Are you in much pain today? I don't complain of much, dear boy. You never do complain. He had spoken his last words. Dear Magwitch, I must tell you now at last. You understand what I say? A gentle pressure on my hand. You had a daughter once whom you loved and lost. A stronger pressure on my hand. She lived. She is living now. She is a lady and very beautiful. And I love her. With a last faint effort, he raised my hand to his lips. Then... He gently let it sink upon his breast. Oh, Lord, be merciful to him, a sinner. Now I was left wholly to myself. I was in debt and had scarcely any money. I should have been alarmed if I had had energy and concentration enough to help me to the clear perception of any truth beyond the fact that I was falling very ill. Old chap. What a scholar you are, ain't you? I should like to be. This is Pip, is it? And we Come brought in, up Pip. as Come a nearer. gentleman. In Let a word, look at you. as a young fellow, you are not a great reputation. You must know that you have no heart. You make it safe. 
I opened my eyes and I saw in the great chair at my bedside, Joe. Is it Joe? Which air old chap? Oh, Joe, you break my heart. Look angry at me, Joe. Strike me, Joe. Tell me of my ingratitude. Don't be so good to me. Which dear old pip old chap? You and me was ever friends. And when you're well enough to go out for a ride, what larks? God bless him. Oh, God bless this gentle Christian man. How long, dear Joe? Which you mean to say, Pip, how long have your illness lasted, dear old chap? Yes, Joe. It's the end of May, Pip. Tomorrow is the first of June. And have you been here all this time, Joe? Pretty nigh, old chap. You were the best of friends, and us, Pip. <sighs> when I got up in the morning, refreshed and stronger, I went to his room, but he was not there. I hurried then to the breakfast table, and on it found a letter. Not wishful to intrude, I have departed, for you are well again, dear Pip, and will do better without. P.S. Ever the best of friends. Joe. Enclosed in the letter was a receipt for the debts and costs which I had owed. What remained for me now but to follow him to the dear old forge? And I would go to Biddy, and I would show her how humbled and repentant I came back. Then I would say to her, Biddy, if you can like me only half as well once more, if you can receive me like a forgiven child, I hope I am a little worthier of you now than I was. The June weather was delicious, and I thought all that countryside more beautiful and peaceful than I had ever known it. I went towards the forge, listening for the clink of Joe's hammer. But the clink of Joe's hammer was not in the midsummer wind. I saw the forge at last, and saw that it was closed. I went softly towards the window, meaning to peep in, when Joe and Biddy stood before me, arm in arm. In another moment she was in my embrace. <laughs> oh, but, dear Biddy, how smart you are! Yes, dear Pip. And Joe, how smart you are! <laughs> yes, dear Pip, old chap. It's my wedding day and I'm married to Joe. Dear Biddy, you have the best husband in the whole world. And Joe, you have the best wife in the whole world. And Joe and Biddy both receive my humble thanks for all that you have done and for all I have so ill repaid. And when I say that I am going away, for I am soon going abroad now, though I know you have already done it in your own kind hearts. Pray, tell me both, that you forgive me. Oh, dear old Pip, old chap. God knows as I forgive you, if I have anything to forgive. Amen. And God knows I do. I sold all I had, and I went out and joined Herbert. Within a month I had quitted England, and within two months I was clerk to Clarica and Co. For eleven years I did not see Joe or Biddy with my bodily eyes when, upon an evening in December, an hour or two after dark, 
I laid my hand softly on the latch of the old kitchen door. There, smoking his pipe in the old place, sat Joe. And there, sitting on my own little stool, looking at the fire, was I, again. We give him the name of Pip for your sake, dear old chap. And we hoped he might grow a little bit like you. Biddy, you must give Pip to me one of these days, or lend him at all events. No, no, you must marry. So Herbert says, but I don't think I shall, Biddy. I am already quite an old bachelor. Dear Pip, tell me, as an old friend, have you quite forgotten her? My dear Biddy, I have forgotten nothing in my life that ever had a foremost place there. But that poor dream, as I once used to call it, has all gone by, Biddy. All gone by. Nevertheless, I knew while I said those words that I intended to revisit the site of the old house alone for her sake. Yes, even so. For Estella's sake. I had heard of her as leading a most unhappy life and as being separated from her husband, who had used her with great cruelty. And I had heard of the death of her husband from an accident consequent on his ill-treatment of a horse. This release had befallen her some two years before. For anything I knew, she was married again. There was no house now, no building whatever left, but the wall of the old garden. I was looking along the desolate garden walk when I beheld a solitary figure in it. Pip? Estella? I am greatly changed. I wonder you know me. After so many years, it is strange that we should thus meet again, Estella. Here, where our first meeting was. The moon began to rise, and I thought of the pressure on my hand when I had spoken the last words he had heard on earth. I have often thought of you. Have you? Of late, very often. I little thought that I should take leave of you in taking leave of this spot. I am very glad to do so. Glad to part again, Estella. To me, parting is a painful thing. To me, remembrance of our last parting has ever been mournful and painful. But you said to me, God bless you, God forgive you. And if you could say that to me then, you will not hesitate to say that to me now. Now, when suffering has been stronger than all other teaching, and has taught me to understand what your heart used to be, I have been bent and broken, but I hope into a better shape. Be as considerate and good to me as you were, and tell me we are friends. We are friends and we'll continue friends apart. I took her hand in mine, and we went out of the ruined place. And, as the morning mists had risen long ago when I first left the forge, so the evening mists were rising now, and in all the broad expanse of tranquil light they showed to me, I saw the shadow of no parting from her. Great Expectations was written by Charles Dickens. This production was adapted by Marcus Baisley and narrated by Jeremy Drakes. It featured Christopher Anderton as Joe, Wemmick and Drummle, 
Marcus Baisley as Compasson, Porter and Galley, Jessica Bryan as Miss Havisham, Victoria Hamblin as Estella and Mrs Joe, William Hollyhead as Herbert Pocket, Dylan Lincoln as Magwitch and Pumplechook, Rosie Marsh as Biddy, Alexander Pankhurst as Sergeant and Jaggers, and Rupert Sadler as Pip. The title music is Moonlight Hall by Kevin MacLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons. Recorded, designed and edited by Andrew Crane, Great Expectations was produced by Helen Johnson in association with Blackshaw Theatre Company and Cyphers Theatre Company. Life's a game. The world's a stage. And we are all merely role players. Join members of Blackshaw Theatre Company as they try on all the many roles there are to play. You are Blackshaw Theatre. Nobody else knows. You're also investigators of inexplicable happenings. <laughs> Deputies of federal law enforcement. Master thieves and con artists. Hooray! <laughs> merely role players, where theatrical people play role-playing games. New episodes every week, new stories and new genres every season. Just search for Merely Role Players wherever you find podcasts.